Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the four teacher unions in Ontario have filed a labor complaint against the Ontario government over their handling of COVID-19 and back to class. There are 48% more teachers on the sunshine list this year than last. Aaron O'Toole is the new leader of the federal conservatives. Do you even know who that is? And China has been ramping up the use of hostage diplomacy by detaining an Australian journalist in China. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. September 1st is here. Kids everywhere just got a tummy ache. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. The September tummy ache. Remember that? Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Week number 25. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. As I mentioned earlier on, uh, legal action, uh, with the Ontario, four main Ontario teachers unions, uh, and the government uh, underway. Here's what Liz Stewart uh, Ontario, uh, Ontario Catholic Teachers Association president had to say. This is Liz Stewart. We've all known for quite some time how important um, good ventilation systems are, for example, and how important distancing is. And so we, we went to the Ministry of Labour to say what we'd like in place in schools are the same standards that have been put in place in other places. And we'd like for the ministry to to write orders so that it's very clear to school boards what they're expected to do. All right. Uh, as I mentioned, the four teachers unions in Ontario have filed a labor complaint against the Ontario government over the COVID-19 response plan to reopen the schools. To talk more, let's bring in Peggy Nash, senior advisor, uh, chair of the Ted Rogers School of Management Center for Labor Management Relations Advisory Committee, Ryerson University, and is, is, is with us now. Peggy, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, fortunately. I hope you are, too. Yeah, you know, week 25, here we go. It's almost feeling like it's normal, isn't it, Peggy? <laughs> yeah, I don't ever want this to get normal. I, I understand. I a lot of us want our old lives back. I hear you. I hear you. All right, so your thoughts on what has happened, and, and, and maybe break it down for, for those that aren't in the know, exactly what has happened here and, and what these unions are looking for. Well, first of all, let me say, I think it really is a shame that it's gotten to this point. I think uh, kids have been out of school for a very long time. Uh, that is certainly not normal. And uh, what what is also not normal is they're anxious to go back to school. They want to go back to school. And I think their parents want them to go back to school but they also want them to go back to school safely. So I think from the parents' point of view, there's a lot of stress in making the decision about whether or not kids do return to school, and every family situation is different. What I understand from the teacher's point of view, for them, it is a workplace, and um, they are concerned about going back to, to work in a workplace that may not be safe. And what I hear them saying is that they want in their workplace the same requirements, the same conditions that other workplaces like grocery stores and um, offices are requiring for their employees. And that's what they have filed a complaint about with the ministry Uh, urging the ministry to issue an order requiring physical distancing, requiring masks, and requiring adequate ventilation, which, um, again, as I understand it, with the current provisions in place, um, uh, these three conditions are are not required right now for all students. And, um, uh, well, well, you know, I, I, one of the situations was masks. And uh, and from what I understand, it's grade four and up. And then the government is leaving it up to the individual boards to 
uh, decide what they want to do in regarding to masking and such with their own scenarios. And as you mentioned, with every personal uh, situation being different, um, how can you how can you make that more mandatory? How can, you know is the answer making it mandatory for everybody and then uh, letting the boards duke it out with the parents? I mean, to me, it seems. Uh, I guess people are, are are people understanding that uh, that the standard workplace is less dangerous than the classroom is 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 working in any other public institution or private institution like a grocery store is that uh, less dangerous or more dangerous than being in a classroom? Well, I mean, I think we'd all like to believe that our classrooms are less dangerous than our classrooms yeah. are safe. After all, we're sending kids there. So we want. So are classrooms safe. less safe than, say, grocery stores? Would you say? Well, the argument that that is being made by the teachers' unions is that because uh, there are not ma- mandatory masking required for all students, and because uh, the classrooms, many classrooms, have poor ventilation and. For many students, there is absolutely no way they'll be able to keep two meters distance because they just won't fit in the classroom. They're arguing that it makes the the potential for the spread of COVID-19 more likely. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Uh, I do know that the two-meter requirement, the mask, good ventilation are things that uh, governments have been saying we need uh so i guess what the teachers are saying is if it's good enough in a grocery store it should be good enough in our schools i I understand that completely i'm just not sure that it's any more dangerous in a classroom than it is a grocery store i guess that's the point that i'm making um uh so where you know that it's unclear at this point um whether uh i mean there are certainly uh, instances of children contracting COVID 19 uh, in the vast majority of cases, they don't seem to become very ill or even have any symptoms. I guess part of the concern is, can children have COVID-19? And, then and if they are not met wearing yeah. masks, yeah. pass it on. And um, again, for teachers, it's their workplace. But for other students, um, could they then become infected, even if they show no symptoms, and bring it home to their family. I guess these are some of the concerns teachers and parents are talking about. You know, um, is uh, is this really a, a argument with government? Let's just talk about the mask issue. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it would be much easier for the government just to say, well, yeah, masks for everybody. The problem is parents and and others, you know, who are concerned that at a very young age, that's very, very difficult. So, uh, again, will making masks mandatory solve that problem? So it almost looks like we're trying we're looking for answers that just don't exist. You know, whether it's, for example, extending uh, the distance to, to create even more distance, as you mentioned, it's a space problem, especially with older schools. These are not problems that can be solved before within a year, even let alone by the beginning of the school year. So again, are, are they asking for things that at this time during the middle of a pandemic that nobody can provide for them? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it, it, as I started out saying, I think it's unfortunate that here we are a week before yeah. school opens in the province yeah. of Ontario and we're having these debates. Are there alternatives? Well, these debates are going on right. Let's be honest here, Peggy. These debates are going on with every single province, with every single uh, government of every pl- uh, single political stripe, right the way across the country. This is not Probably an Ontario. The world, okay? It's not an Ontario exclusive problem by any means. Yeah, I mean, and no one, no one has the perfect answer. If you look at some European countries right now, Spain is in the middle of what seems like their second wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it seems like they open too quickly and um, too much. So no one no one has the perfect answer. And until there's a vaccine, it seems there will be risk. So yeah. the question is, how do you minimize that risk? Um, uh, could could there be other solutions? I mean, the the teachers will likely say that. 
there could be additional spaces that are opened, um, additional space in community centers or underutilized facilities right now that perhaps could be used for schools. Um, obviously, that would mean hiring more teachers. How quickly can that be done? I mean, you know, you're right in the sense that these are all practical problems that are difficult to address the week before school opens. You were saying that with everything that you've just said, uh, no one has the perfect answer. Will the courts provide that perfect answer? Um, It it just seems, you know, it just seems when there are no answers to pandemic questions, uh, I'm not sure if the courts are the right, uh, you know, you're the labor expert. What happens now? How does this move forward? Well, the Labor Board will will have a hearing and make a decision. They can have these things pretty quickly, um, and uh, they'll, they'll decide. I mean, the unions are saying the government is breaking its own rules, which require distancing, masks, etc., and um, it will be up to the board to decide, yes, that's a legitimate argument or it's not. Uh, I'm not privy to their timeline. They can make decisions quite quickly. Uh, if they don't make a decision, um, then I guess it's up to, it's up to the uh, unions to decide how they, how they proceed. Because as it stands, teachers are expected to be in the classrooms next week. So uh, you said it's unfortunate that we got here. Uh, it was this, is, is this unavoidable or is it, you know, any time that, that these two parties or, you know, the unions, the teacher unions or the government, whether it's uh, whatever the government of the day is, that this is just inevitable? I mean, you know, it just seems that, you know, we've all enjoyed uh, governments of every level. Uh, whether it's municipal, federal, provincial, all working together. We're seeing governments of every stripe work together, but we always seem to have this issue. And, and you know, I know the Premier's been very vocal on that. What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I uh, hear uh, the concerns of parents about uh, their children's safety. And one of the biggest concerns that I hear is about uh, the number of children in a classroom. Um, I think that it, this is not an inevitable uh, conflict. I think uh, everybody could work together for the, the good of, of the students. And um, I, I, if you're asking my personal opinion, I don't believe that um, trying to create more distance between students is a bad thing. I think that once you get 25, 30 kids in a classroom, uh, you know, a traditional-sized classroom, there's absolutely no way you can have proper physical distancing. So I think that's a legitimate concern, and um, uh, I don't have an easy answer. It either involves, uh, as the high schools are doing, with, with uh, rotating between home uh, homeschooling uh, online and in person, which is almost impossible for parents then to go to work, or it involves uh, additional space, additional teachers, and um, you know maybe a more phased-in approach to opening up the schools to ensure that there's this proper the proper precautions are taking place. But if these precautions are good enough for our bars, for our restaurants, for our stores. Uh, there, there is an argument to be made that this should be a, a absolutely reasonable requirement in our schools. Now, whether the board agrees with that, I guess we'll see. Again, Peggy, you know, you just made the statement that the bars and the and the grocery stores are safer than the classrooms, and I'm not sure that's accurate. Is it? I'm saying these are the requirements in those places. I'm not saying they're safer. Uh, I'm personally not going to bars right now. (laughs) Masks or no masks. Um, I'm not making that argument. What I am saying is if the medical experts are saying that these are reasonable precautions that we should be taking to limit the spread of the virus, then it would make sense that these precautions apply to all workplaces. 
So yeah, again, I, I'm 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 trying to I'm still trying to figure out why this isn't working yet everything else is. Um, and, and again, I'm not convinced that those places are, are the classrooms are more hazardous than being out in the general population the way we all are now, or or going into a grocery store, uh, for that matter. And, and I'm not convinced that um, that that uh, grocery stores are safer than than say classrooms are. As far as the physical distance, we just don't have the space, from what I understand to in every scenario to push it out to 15 but those boards that do have the options uh to do that um again as i look at every province of every political stripe right the way across the country they've all basically come up with the same plan so again unless there's something that's better that you know like why aren't why aren't we all why aren't other provinces doing it why aren't we all doing it this is sort of the magic template that we've come to yet it doesn't and it will never be enough i mean it's never enough but again it just seems that we're asking for things that are either impossible to do or or well beyond our reach and when we're looking across at what every other jurisdiction's doing what every other country's doing what every other province is doing uh, specifically within Canada, we're doing a, a pretty good job, and and every province is doing basically the same thing. So, again, I'm not sure there's a solution here, and if going to court will make our kids safer. Well, I guess ultimately the the board will will make a decision on this. You know, I, I mean, what I do agree is uh, no one has the perfect answer. There was a terrific article. Um, a few months back, very early in the pandemic, and they talked about a scenario of the hammer and the dance. And they said the hammer is the lockdown where everybody has to stay home. And of course, we've lived through that. And the dance is when you kind of tiptoe out on the dance floor and you start dancing again. And then when, and that's opening up society. And when things uh, start flaring up again, uh, then you get off the dance floor. Right, and right. there's that back and forth, back and forth. And I think we're going to see some of that for the next period of time. Yeah. Um, do I fault teachers for wanting to be as safe as possible and wanting to keep kids as safe as possible? No, I don't. No, no. Um, and I think where, uh, uh, you know, what we can do is just try. I, I don't know that anybody has the perfect solution, but I think if we listen to our health experts, um, these are their recommendations. And, and they're not just saying for bars and restaurants and supermarkets. They are saying for schools that uh, good ventilation is a key. That's really a priority. We don't tend to worry as much about. And again, um, I think these are all things that. The pandemic in the yeah. summer, but in the winter, I think there's going yeah. to be a lot of concern. And I think these are things that everybody is trying to work on. Uh, I don't think this is falling on deaf ears. Uh, Peggy Nash has been with us, Ted Rogers School of Management Center for Labor Management Relations Advisory Committee, Ryerson University. Peggy, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks very much. You too. Let's bring in Jasmine Moulton, Canadian Taxpayers uh, Federation. Uh, new inform- information from them uh, emerging today. Nearly 15,000 teachers last year were on the sunshine list. Uh, that is anyone making uh, over $100,000, uh, I guess, working for the public service, uh, which is really surprising is that's a four- 48% increase from the year prior. Uh, to talk more about this, Jasmine Moulton, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jasmine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, um, again, go on and explain exactly what the Sunshine List is, but uh, what are your thoughts on that increase of 48% from year to year? Well, it was jaw-dropping, I'll put it that way. So, for your listeners who might not know, every year the government has to uh, make public all a list of all of its employees that earn $100,000 salary or more every year. And so the Canadian Taxpayers Federation decided to count how many teachers were on that list. And as I say, we were shocked to find out that there was a 46% increase. Um, there were nearly 15,000 teachers on Ontario's 2019 Sunshine List. There will be more this year since they've taken pay raises. But to give your listeners an idea of just how many six-figure teachers there are in Ontario, uh, you could almost fill the entire town of Bracebridge with these top earners. 
Uh, how do you explain that increase from year to year at 46%? Well, one key factor that happened in 2019 was that the Ford government passed legislation that would give uh, 1% raise government-wide. So that would uh, include teachers, and that government-wide raise cost taxpayers $720 million. Uh, so that could be one one factor. Uh, the, the other is that even when there's a pay freeze for teachers, um, or like Doug Ford caps their raise increases at 1%, they're still able to move through their normal pay grid. So just because their earnings are capped at 1%, that means 1% doing the same job, but they can still move up the pay grid. What about, I'll play devil's advocate here, Jasmine, what about those that say 100000 isn't what it used to be? Although, can you use that argument now? You may have been able to get away with it 10 years ago. Is that an argument with time uh, gains weight? I think that for the average Ontarian who earns an income in 2018 of 56000 which is approximately half of what top earning teachers are earning, that $100,000 figure is pretty darn important. So for me, it's extremely relevant and it shows government largesse and just how much, uh, you know, I think it's sunshine is the best, uh, the best light here. Um, we need to, in order to hold our government accountable, we need to know what it's paying employees because these are taxpayer dollars. And I just want to clarify for your listeners, because I sometimes get accused of teacher bashing, but this is the opposite of that. I have an immense amount of respect for teachers, but this is about the trade-off between teacher compensation and class sizes. It's really simple. The more we pay teachers, the fewer we can afford. As teacher compensation goes up, so do class sizes. That's why we're bringing this to light. What are your thoughts on uh, the four main teachers unions taking the government to court in regard to uh, safe back-to-work conditions for them this fall? Well, I heard Harvey Bischoff, who's the president of the Ontario High School Teachers uh, Union, he was on the radio this morning in Ottawa, and he was asked, uh, would teachers take a temporary pay cut to reduce class sizes? Because that is really one, the main crux of their issue. Yeah. The teachers unions are saying we need smaller class sizes to make it safer. Um, but when he was asked, you know, would teachers take a temporary pay cut to reduce class sizes, his answer was, and I quote, nobody's pay has been cut in the pandemic. This is shocking. So as a wow, exactly. wow, yeah, he I should come to. Like, he better not come to my house. Well, <laughs> anyway. actually, the interviewer deserves a lot of credit uh, on the radio this morning. He held him to account, and as a fact check for your listeners, I'll say this is absolutely false. Two point two million Ontarians lost their jobs or took a pay cut because of the pandemic. So this, to me, just shows that for the teachers' union bosses. This is about compensation. It's not about the kids because they could easily, I mean, if you just look at these 15,000 top earning teachers on the Sunshine List, if they took a 10% pay cut, the province could afford to hire thousands more teachers and reduce class sizes. So I would ask parents listening to the show, which option do you prefer? Should we give uh, teachers a six-figure, or should we give six-figure teachers a $3,000 raise over the next three years? Or would you prefer smaller class sizes for the kids? Yeah, that discussion never comes up, does it? No, quite conveniently. But I, I mean, I want to draw a clear distinction here between teachers, union bosses and teachers, because I never hear teachers complain that they want more money. That's not their main complaint, at least from what mm-hmm. I hear. They say, I, I really love smaller class sizes. And everybody also knows teachers fresh out of teachers college that can't find a permanent position. And yeah. that's exactly my point. If the pay for top earning teachers weren't so high, we could afford to hire more. So I think there's a clear distinction here between teachers, union bosses and the teachers themselves. And I think parents, teachers and kids all would want smaller class sizes, which could be achieved if teachers weren't paid so much. That's a very fascinating angle, uh, Jasmine. I remember asking Harvey Bischoff on our show, the president of the High School Teachers Union, uh, in regard to uh, uh, the government of the day. This was prior to COVID nineteen, and, and just what was going on with the ongoing strikes. And I, you know, I said, as a, as a parent, I've gone through this with my kids. As a student, I went through it in the nineteen seventies. Uh, and it seems that no matter the government of the day, whether it's NDP, whether it's liberal, whether it's conservative, we always end up in the same place. And the quote that I have from Harvey Bischoff is, they're all out to raid 
education. And I thought that was just astounding. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with every uh, politician, but I, I think in the end they all have the best intention, and they're not out to raid anything. But again, I, I, and, and as you pointed out with what he said today, nobody's taken a cut. I just think they're very much out of touch with what's going on with the average Canadian. What are your thoughts? Well, absolutely. I mean, when you see that, uh, when you see that the teachers again accepted a raise in the middle of the pandemic in April, Harvey Bischoff signed off on a raise for teachers. Yeah, and said he would to- he'd have to be tone deaf in, not- in order not to take that. And and I just thought, my goodness, even to say those words, you know, is is confrontational. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted, Jasmine. Go ahead. <laughs> no problem, but. I mean, when I say that there's 15,000 teachers on the Sunshine List earning a salary of 100000 or more per year, that leaves out any discussion of the taxpayer-funded pension contributions and benefits that they enjoy. So get this. Uh, I hope you're sitting down for this one. Top-earning teachers in the province actually take home a total compensation, so salary plus uh, benefits plus pension, of over $120,000 a year. And that's from 2018, a Freedom of Information request that Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, received. So, I mean, when you look at this total compensation, there are some people in the province that might say, you know, teachers deserve every penny. They they deserve two times that amount. I'm not saying teachers don't deserve to be paid well, but what I'm saying is there are other stakeholders involved in this decision. And I think the most important one is the students in the classroom. And they're having to sit in bigger class sizes because education dollars are flowing to uh, teachers union compensation instead of uh, to hiring more teachers, entry-level teachers, who could reduce class sizes. So just to clarify, and I don't know if you have this stat with you, uh, they get the 1% increase. If they didn't get that, how many more teachers would we be able to have hired? Do we know? So I took a look, and um, again, for the 15,000 top-earning teachers, um, what I have calculated is if they took a 10% pay cut, that would be about uh, $1.5 billion that the province could save, which would allow us to hire approximately 3,000 more entry-level teachers. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure how, by how much, uh, I don't have the calculation for that, right. how much that would reduce class sizes, but certainly it would be significant. I mean, thousands more entry-level teachers. Um, I think that that would be uh, very beneficial for students. It would appease parents that have to send their kids back to school this fall. And I think that that's what a lot of teachers want. It's their union bosses who seem to be obstructing. Jasmine, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we, uh, of course, uh, learned the new of the new conservative leader, uh, I guess, a week or so ago now. Or was it a couple of weeks ago? You know, it all kind of blends together, doesn't it? Aaron O'Toole is the new conservative leader of uh, the federal party. Uh, not many people know him. So he was on with Roy Green this past weekend. Uh, many are concerned uh, about his social conservative leanings. That's uh, the part of the party that that uh, appears to have supported him in his win. And uh, he was asked about his view on racism uh, on the Roy Green Show this past weekend. Here's what Aaron O'Toole had to say. We are a party of liberty and and meritocracy. We want to see zero roadblocks for anyone. We have a zero tolerance for racism and anti-Semitism. Intolerance of of any kind is is really a cancer that we we have to stamp out. And all right, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, also Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is with us now. Thank you for the time, Tim. I hope you're doing well. Well, and Scott, like you, uncertain of, you know, it all blends together, right? You're still at home. You still hope that your family loves you. I'm just sitting outside in the backyard talking to you again. It's just like one long month. I know. Oh, the only thing a happy conversation. The only thing I can confirm is that the dog will bark on a regular basis when somebody walks by the house. Other than that, I don't know what the heck is going on. Uh, do Canadians realize that the Conservatives have a new leader right now? <laughs> well, I, probably the conserv- people vote Conservative do. No, look, I mean, geez, with everything else that's going on, the Conservative, the election of Aaron O'Toole got you know a, a, a little bit of play last week, but then the the world took over again, and and that's the challenge that uh, you know Mr. O'Toole knows that he has. So getting on with your colleague Roy, and I think he was doing CTV's Your Morning this morning, and getting out there is now what he's got to do because he's got to introduce himself to the rest of the Canadian public. And the other challenge he has right now, we talked about this last week, is. What's on everybody's mind? School, 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 school. So 
he's got to break in on uh, break into that uh, th- that track, which is a real serious one for so many people right now. Uh, are people uh, obviously n- very few know about him? He's known certainly within political circles. He's not new at this by any means, but certainly uh, in the public eye, it seems he's having to defend himself on things like his social conservative is uh, conservatism, and as well other members of the party who may have those views, uh, like Derek Sloan. Yeah, right. A passage, right, for every conservative leader, uh, it seems, and not unexpected given. Mr. O'Toole did win on the what third ballot, and he got the support of known social conservative Derek Sloan and, and Leslie Lewis, who uh, also places uh, a high value on on faith. Um, he, I think, he's handled that generally pretty well. I know in his first two public appearances before he started doing the uh, the the media circuit, look, he said he was pro-choice, and he's voted uh, one of the first conservatives, if I remember correctly, who's voted for. Uh, legislation dealing with LGBTQ rights, and uh, so he's leading with that, which is rare and positive to see. Um, the racism one, he seems to have a little bit more trouble with. He was good, I thought, in his response there to Roy, but I know I think he'd done an interview uh, with the Global, Global, and he said he wasn't, uh, uh, or the paraphrasing of it was he didn't believe in systemic racism. Um, He's probably going to have to look at how he answers that question on a go-forward basis, but those questions are going to keep on coming for him. Uh, your thoughts on his, uh, because again, nowadays uh, it, it seems that you can't avoid the systemic racism question. You have to have an answer. Yeah, look, and I think, I don't know what's wrong with saying what I believe to be the truth. that There's uh, systemic every- racism. Yeah, exactly. Like if there wasn't systemic racism, Tim, we wouldn't be talking about it and asking if there's systemic racism exactly. all the time. So I don't know why people have difficulty yeah. with it. You're not betraying anything to acknowledge that every organization, every culture has some form of systemic challenge and problem and bias, and that's just normal. It doesn't mean it's terrible. Yeah. In some cases, it has been terrible, but it does mean it needs to be worked on. I think he's just got to embrace that. Uh, what about uh, since his election, it doesn't appear as if, and it's still early on, and as you mentioned, we are in a pandemic, the kids are going back to school, so there certainly is bigger fish to fry here, but it doesn't seem that his election has moved the meter much. Uh, it's too early for that to happen anyway. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, there is this sense that uh, even Stefan Dion, my God, Scott, years ago, got a bump after his leadership race, but there was 10 times more coverage and there wasn't a pandemic. Yeah, I don't think the leadership race is really gonna and the uh, announcement of the winner move polls in the short term because of all those other things this is a world in which we have ever experienced before and i i think everybody whether you have school-aged children or not is just so focused on this return to school because it also is being signified as you know is the second wave coming or not and does this help drive it along so I mean, good luck any political leader trying to get through who isn't managing it on a daily basis to to make any traction here. Uh, Jason Kenney, uh, Premier of Alberta, obviously uh, supported Aaron O'Toole. Does that hurt or yeah. help? Are we are we are there those out there that if Kenny says it, we're out? Uh, probably. Well, it helped him in the leadership race, but there's two different races. Right, you have to win the leadership race first, and then you have to win. Uh, if you want want to be prime minister, you obviously have to win the general election. Um, Kenny was certainly a hot political property prior to the pandemic, um, but he's had some challenges, not just pandemic related, but he's a hugely popular figure in conservative force in circles. That will help O'Toole in the West, where Jason Kenney still still uh, liked, and in the East it could be a bit more of a challenge, and that's where O'Toole needs to carve out more of his own identity and and brand, which he seemingly looks like he's trying to do. Uh, there's been a chatter about, and obviously when this uh, when, when uh, O'Toole was elected, there was the question was asked to the premier if he would support the premier of Ontario. Ford would support uh, O'Toole, and and he basically said, Ford said, uh, you know, I'm not involved. I'm not getting involved in the federal <laughs> politics. Does does O'Toole now need? Ford support. Do the Conservatives so need funny, Ford right? support? Andrew Shearer and Miles and Miles. Away yeah, he's running in the other direction now. All of a sudden, he's getting hugs. Yeah, they want a they want a a warm embrace. Uh, he he may, and who knows what happens when a federal election actually takes place? But I think 
sports reading the mood of the country well right now and and, and Ontario and that there isn't this desire for uber partisan politics so you know who knows what'll happen if and when uh, I don't think an election's going to happen in September with this uh, the throne speech but if there's one next spring maybe maybe it's a different time maybe there's a return to some politics as normal but yeah Aaron O'Toole right now could use some of the the shine uh, and sunlight that uh, Doug Ford is able to cast in many quarters does the fact that uh, Doug Ford and Christia Freeland and the Prime Minister seem to be getting along so well, does that, does that irk the Conservatives in Ontario? Oh, it would irk some of the hardcore because uh, Justin Trudeau is viewed to be political enemy number one. But uh, uh, but that's the reality, right? And that's the reality that it should be. They don't have even have to be... Um, Doug Ford doesn't have to be oozing the praise that he is for Freeland and Trudeau. People need to be working together right now. And even hardcore conservatives who want to win have to come to understand that Aaron O'Toole has to propagate that message and believe in that with the broader public because there's something bigger than, you know, just the liberals being bad in, in the political land right now. And that's hoping Canada can navigate its way through all of this. I was just telling your friend, Will, I mean, I've been dealing with uh, dealing with the reality of the pandemic today and one of the organizations we work with having to let people go. I mean, Mm. that's the harsh reality and it's more painful uh, than 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 any uh, political slogan. You bring up a very valid point too, Tim, and, and, and that is we've seemed to lost to have lost sight that we can't agree to disagree. Uh, you know, everybody just expects the premier to hate the prime minister because of their different political stripes. But you know, what, what, what really what professionals do here is they separate that and they figure out a way to make things work. They figure a way uh, to find a solution here. Have we just lost sight of that? Yeah, I mean, we got so into, and you saw that all through, every election. I mean, and even you know, the critics of Doug Ford will remind you, and the right to remind you, Doug Ford took a very polarizing approach in his early days in office. Yeah, but yeah. he evolved as circumstances change. You can argue, you know, Trudeau, the we scandal aside, which is about liberal self-interest, has generally tried to do that too. And when he has and when Doug Ford has, Canadians have rewarded them with strong public opinion numbers. Getting back to Aaron O'Toole, how does he balance uh, his issues on climate change and his support for the West and the international resources and getting them to market? Which, by the way, the Prime Minister also says he does. But how, how do you balance that, especially when there's obviously going to be a very green throne speech on, on the way? Yeah, I, I think where the Conservatives are going to go, you, hear, you will hear more about net zero target. So meaning when people will get to a place where their emissions are lower. Um, I think the conservatives are going to try and focus on ways to get there that aren't, um, that don't involve carbon pricing, whether they'll be able to do that or not, who knows. But I think to deal with that whole conglomerate of voters that do rightly care about the environment, O'Toole is going to change his language. He did bits of that during the leadership race, and as you know, he got attacked. But... Um, it, but it's still going to be a difficult balancing act because so many jobs in the West and, and many in my home province, as I often say to you, still depend on the uh, extractive industries going for at least another 25 or 30 years. So there's a collision course. He's got to navigate his way through that. Uh, does he need to continue to distance himself uh, from social conservatives? Because, again, the liberals are constantly using that that's how he got elected. Uh, he just has to correctly. He has. I don't know if it's a distance himself, but he has to convince people. And I think he's knowing him a little bit. I think he's legitimate about it. That the Conservative Party is a welcoming party, so he has to provide examples of that to show that, uh, regardless of whatever other faith, ethnicity, belief system that you have, that you you're welcome in the Conservative Party. And the Liberals are going to keep coming hard at him, and he's he's got to keep coming hard back with that message. If he starts to waver or 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 act as Sheer did and uh, was just couldn't give a comprehensive answer or looked like a, a fellow with his head in the sand, he's going to be screwed again, and the Liberals will win. Uh, what advice would you have for Aaron O'Toole? Has he already slid a bit simply because he wasn't quick to jump on those points we talked about earlier? I, I, I 
get a better answer on you know, you, what you said to Roy was a good answer. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid to say there is systemic racism because there is. It's real. Uh, it varies in degree, but it's it's real. Um, so I would say get a grasp on them and keep trying to do what you're doing. Interest, introduce yourself to Canadians. Drive that welcoming message. But most importantly, uh, as you're doing that, come up with a conservative vision and a plan for the next decade that maybe does borrow some things for the liberals but from the liberals but nonetheless speaks to what conservatives would do if they were in power because we're going to get to a place scott come probably the spring or late winter when the budget comes when the liberals and they're going to start with their throne speech you're going to lay out their vision for the next 10 years the conservatives have to lay out theirs uh if they hope to be competitive uh, since there has been so much focus on this September 23rd throne speech, uh, is it any is it different than others? Are the conservatives, do they have to be uh, especially ready this time? Is there a different tone to this one? Uh, well, I guess it's different because it's in the age of the pandemic, and I think all this election drum stuff is, is nonsense. I would be really quite flabbergasted if we had an election because there's too many variables, and parties like to control variables best they can if they're going to go to the polls but whenever there's a confidence vote in the minority parliament the uh, the noises get louder about a potential election and that's mostly the commentary at doing it i'd rate the chance of an election right now what are we three weeks out at uh, three weeks from today isn't it at uh, mm-hmm. at 25 percent or less all right tim powers has been in with us vice chairman summa strategies managing director abacus data and uh pretty much runs rugby canada tim as always thank you for the time uh all the best and be well and you tell the dog i say hello all right go feed him a treat will you i'm sh- i'm surprised you haven't spoken to him already uh it is 155 <laughs> news on the way thank you tim there you go thanks tim The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. That's the dog, Tucker. Uh, No doubt saying goodbye to the fence guy. Uh, Feel free to uh, jump into the fun, Facebook and Twitter. (laughs) Thanks, Will. Make it even harder for me to do this uh, and concentrate on what is going on here. All right, Joe Crow outside the window, tuck the dog inside. Uh, You know, what do you do? Uh, China has been ramping up its use of hostage diplomacy uh, when dealing with national relations. Uh, The National Post is reporting that uh, uh, experts uh, are saying that uh, they're certainly increasing this sort of activity following the detention of an Australian news anchor in Beijing this month uh, as tensions escalate between those two countries. Uh, the anchor has been detained in China since mid-August, uh, very much familiar, uh, very much similar to what Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaber are going through. Uh, they were jailed, obviously, after authorities uh, arrested the Huawei uh, CFO back in December of uh, 2018. To talk more about all of this and where it is going, is it increasing? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, McDonald-Laurier Institute, and he is with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good to speak with you, Scott. What can you tell us about this case involving the Australian journalist? Well, it's a similar to the Kovrick and Saver matter. You know, this is a, a lady who um, emigrated from China to Australia many years ago and, in fact, worked for Chinese media. Um, and so she wasn't working for a foreign media firm. She has been uh, detained, um, but... No information is given about any charge. So from that point of view, it's similar to Cobra and Saber. She's in a place, uh, location unknown, which is also what happened to Kovrick and his favor. But an interesting difference in between her case and Kovrick and Saber is that the Chinese have allowed the Australian government consular access to this lady, Miss Chung Lei, um, by video conference whereas we have not uh, seen anything of either Mr. Kovrick or Mr. Saver since January, which really makes me wonder exactly what is going on with them if the Chinese claim that we can't get access to them, which, of course, you know, is, is our right under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. 
That is disturbing that uh, they seem to be treating this situation different from uh, the two Michaels. Any thought as to why that might be happening? Is it because perhaps she's in the media? Although I'm, you know, I'm sure the two Michael cases generates as much interest as as, as someone who's been taken from the media. But uh, is does that have anything to do with this? The difference? I, you know, I'm purely speculating here. It could be that one of our people is in serious trouble, illness death um you know gone uh, mm-hmm. lost uh, their their emotional balance or it could be that uh, the chinese are are trying to pressure mr kovrick and mr saver to um make false confessions which would be broadcast on the chinese tv you know up to now there's really absolutely no basis whatsoever for subjecting them to this hell of over 600 days now and so the chinese government would like them to to say that they were engaging in illegal activities like espionage, conspiring together for espionage purposes on behalf of Canada, and that might be part of it. But I am very concerned. It's certainly highly irregular for us to have no access to two Canadians being held in China for an eight-month period. And the situation, what was the reasoning for uh, arresting this Australian journalist? Has she been critical of China? Uh, No, she worked for the Chinese media, so all of her reports have been supporting China. Um, They have not given any reason or any charge, and so it appears to be simply, uh, you know, as the case of Kovrigan's favor, a means to further harass the government of Australia. And uh, that's, you know, the conclusion that we can draw from it now. And as you referred to in the introduction of your Report. Um, the National Post has uh, done reporting about an extensive document, uh, 60-page document prepared by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute that details 54 examples of this kind of uh, coercion and diplomacy, either in arresting people or in um, coming up with spurious reasons to stop the import into China of, uh, of commodities from countries who have uh, engaged in behavior that the Chinese government um, doesn't like. You know, for example, when the Nobel Prize was awarded to a Chinese distant Liu Xiaobo, they stopped bringing in um, uh, Norwegian salmon. Uh, when the hmm. South Koreans put in a an anti-missile station um, on uh, South Korean territory that could have um, allowed us to monitor more closely some Chinese missile, missiles, they um, they started to to close. Uh, Korean department stores in China on spurious grounds and stop tourism, you know, and we have Australia with the Australian demand that China have an open and uh, and free study of the origins of the COVID-19, which China is very much opposed to. They don't want an international investigation and so on and so on. So, you know, it seems that flouting the the rules of accepted rules of diplomacy, violating international treaties, uh, to try and pressure governments to comply with Chinese political demands has become the modus operandi of this regime. It really bears more resemblance to, you know, an episode of The Sopranos hmm. than, uh, than anything normal in, in international di- diplomatic interaction. Uh, obviously, uh, this lady is an Australian citizen and, and journalist, but is reporting for China. Does that not seem odd that they would detain her, as opposed to if she was reporting to the outside world? Yes, it does seem a, a very unusual situation. The other thing that often happens in these cases is that the um, Chinese government will pressure the the person who has been arrested in China to renounce their foreign citizenship and say that they want to be Chinese again. This has happened in the case of Gui Minhai, who was a Hong Kong book publisher who published exposés of the of the lives of the Chinese um, communist leadership elite who was kidnapped from Thailand and, and deported illegally from Thailand, in other words, kidnapped by the Chinese state authorities and taken to Thailand without processing an exit from that country. And he was then, subsequently, we were told that he willingly wished to renounce his Swedish citizenship and go back to being a Chinese citizen so that the Swedes had no further consular claim on him. So we might see something along those lines. Um, And, of course, it would significantly uh, disincentive 
Australians of Chinese descent from traveling back to China if they could be subject to this kind of arbitrary uh, um, arrest and and uh, and co- coercion into renouncing their foreign citizenship. Well, here we go again, Charles. I mean, asking the question, are those from outside China safe in China? I mean, we talked about this after the after the two Michaels were taken. I mean, are Canadians safe there, or Australians in this case? Well, I think that, uh, you know, certainly one would have a lot of concern over the 900,000 Canadians who speak Cantonese and have origins in um, Hong Kong, um, returning to either Hong Kong or China for fear that they could become um, pawns in the Chinese government's desire that Canada should not provide a safe harbor for people in Hong Kong who will be subject to um, persecution under what we regard as an illegal law, the Hong Kong National Security Act, that violates the promises that China made um, to the global community when Hong Kong reverted to Chinese sovereignty 20 years ago and violates the Sino-British Joint Declaration that both Britain and China asked Canada to endorse before it um, went into the UN, or Canada's um, current um, uh, considerations about putting Chinese officials complicit in gross human rights violations onto our Magnitsky list, which would stop them from coming to Canada or accessing their assets here in Canada, which I think would really be quite a significant uh, move against the Chinese um, regime who want to protect the elite families of the senior levels of the regime uh, as a as a major priority. You know, you look at Meng Wanzhou and she uh, she has two enormous mansions in Vancouver that she wasn't normally living with in and was when she was arrested at the Vancouver airport was found to be carrying seven passports. You know, this is the kind of um, behavior that one would associate with people who are seeking a bolt hole against uh, political factional instability in China. And so if we were to, you know, use our our Magnitsky legislation to sanction Chinese communist officials, that would be something that would, in fact, have quite considerable impact uh, where it really matters, which is the senior levels of the Chinese communist regime. So China definitely if, doesn't want us to do that. And if so we did that, what would the... Non-subtle ways to stop us. If we did, in fact, do that, Charles, what would be the retaliation? Well, I think that, you know, there's all sorts of things that, that China could do uh, in terms of trade and um, and sending tourists. and. Uh, but we can expect that anyway. Um, you know, but I don't, I, I think that we would be better off um, standing up to China and accepting the potential uh, economic consequences. I mean, after all, only 4% of our external trade goes to China and, and they sell a lot more here. And I think it's high time that we we clamp down against Chinese uh, espionage, cyber espionage, and other means of trying to gain influence here. And they're menacing of people in Canada who have views that are not consistent with the Chinese Communist Party's perspectives. And, you know, any number of things, it's time for Canada to to decide that, you know, we have to stand up for our values and defend our people and not make these compromises because we think that... Um, that they're necessary for us to maintain our trade relationship with China. So, you know, I'm I'm feeling that the Magnitsky Act would be a very important uh, move, um, providing safe harbor to people who can get out of Hong Kong um, and uh, and uh, and escape um, unjustified persecution, and uh, ensuring that our Hong Kong Canadians um, are recognized to be Canadian by the Chinese regime and not uh, subject to arbitrary treatment under Chinese law. Uh, in regard to the detention of this Australian uh, reporter in China, is is this getting worldwide attention? How much attention is this getting? Well, I, I you know, I wish it was getting more. And certainly, I think that what we need is uh, more of an alliance between like-minded powers to... Are we seeing the Allies unite as a result of this, Charles? I'm sorry? Are we going to see the allies unite as a result of this? Well, I would like to see that, but, you know, up to now our government has been simply thinking about safe harbor for Hong Kongers and thinking about the Magnitsky Act, and I would prefer that Canada take the lead in trying to come up with an alliance of like-minded powers to say to China that we are going to stand united against what you're doing to us, and it's all for one and one for all, so that 
you know, we can deal with this Australian reporter and at the same time um, make it clear to the Chinese government that holding Kovrigan's favor has meaningful consequences for that regime because it won't just be Canada they're facing, but all of us united together, hopefully including the United States. How is this different from the two? How is the detention of the Australian uh, journalist different than the two Michaels? Obviously, she is of Chinese origin. Does that change things? Well, I think, uh, yes, I think it does uh, change things. They've got, um, presently, China is holding under these uh, hostage diplomacy tactics three Australians. All of them are of ethnic Chinese origin. So, you know, I think that that, that doesn't gain the same degree of, of mm-hmm. um of support as uh, when it's someone who has no previous connection to China. You know, we had Kevin and Julia Garrett who were held by China for 768 days, and um, and now we've got Kovrigan's favor. You know, obviously um, people look at those at those um, cases and feel that it's extremely unlikely that there's anything more to it than than uh, China's um, arbitrary imposition of of uh, retaliation. But when you're looking at ethnic Chinese, I think people wonder if if there might be more complicating factors because of their pre-existing connection to China. You know, we have we have the wine merchant from here, uh, John Chang, who's been held in China now for three years over a over a, a, a dispute that apparently is is um, not due to fault on his part. But that case has much less profile than Kovrigan's favor. It's going to be fascinating when, and here's hoping it's sooner rather than later, when the two Michaels return, how Canada is going to react to their story, what they have to say. Yes. We've certainly heard from from, uh, the Garrett's the kind of of appallingly bad treatment that they received for no good reason. And after 768 days, Kevin Garrett was returned to Canada, and the Chinese have not claimed that he ever did anything wrong. So, you know, from that point of view, um, you know, I think it will have a, a profound impact when uh, Kovrigan's favor reveal the truth about how this regime operates. Uh, I'm just hoping that Kovrigan's favor will return to Canada in good health, and I'm very concerned that our lack of consular access to them indicates that something else might be the case. Mm. Uh, obviously, China must be fearful if they release these two men, what they would say back home, would would they not? Yes, I think that's true, particularly if they can't get them to make a false confession that they would have to repudiate on return to Canada. So, you know, we've seen the case of, uh, of uh, Peter Humphreys and Peter Dallin who did that. They made these false confessions, and then later they said that they were coerced, and Mr. Humphrey said that he was drugged at the time. But it's uh, it's less clear than if they're able to stand their ground and refuse to be uh, menaced into saying things that are untrue and muddying the waters about the truth of what happened, which is that they were taken in arbitrarily as as a thug menacing device that didn't work out in terms of the Chinese government's intention that it would lead to the release of Meng Wanzhou. How are the Australians reacting to the detainment of this journalist? I think that in Australia, public opinion and and particularly government opinion are far more advanced than we're seeing here in Canada. And so from the Australian point of view, they're ready to largely decouple from China, even though Australia has considerably more trade reliance on China than Canada does. So I think there's a greater awareness of Chinese influence operations the nature of the Chinese regime, the need to to stand up and and protect our our global international order against um, the Chinese uh, plans for domination and hegemony, and so from that point of view, within Australia, I think that there's a much uh, stronger outcry over this, and certainly uh, a, a, a much greater confidence that there is no legitimate basis for arresting this uh, this female journalist because the Chinese have not been able to give us any reason as to why that that would justify her arrest. Has uh, China done irreparable damage to their image worldwide? I think it's getting to that stage. I think that they, I think the Chinese regime was hoping that they could keep all of this stuff sort of under the radar. So, you know, they make these spurious claims about uh, Canadian canola seeds, and they don't say that it's retaliation 
and it it keeps them from from getting into trouble with the WTO for violating their commitment to to the WTO in these matters. And I think with regard to Kovrigan's favor, they expected if they if they held them for a while that eventually the Canadian government would crack and Miss Meng would be returned to to China. You know, you, you may remember. A, the day before, Justice Heather Holmes of the B.C. Superior yeah. Court handed down yeah. her decision saying that the U.S. extradition request was justified, that Meng Wanzhou had staged a, uh, a photo op on the steps of the B.C. Superior Court, flashing mm-hmm. victory signs, suggesting that that picture would be used the next day to show that, you know, we wow. China triumphed. Um, when it didn't happen, then China's stuck between a rock and a hard place. How can they, how can they recover their reputation and uh, and productive relations with Canada um, when it becomes so apparent that their behavior towards Kovrigan's favor is brutal, inhumane, and utterly unjustified. You know, would Canadian cities want to establish friendship relationships with China? Will people uh, encourage, you know, more Confucius Institutes or, or attend um, Chinese state uh, performances? Um, or are Canadians so repelled by that regime that we just want to keep away from them and uh, and try and move on to other relations with other countries like India, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to engage in productive trade and diplomatic relations on terms which don't cause us to feel that we're we're grossly violating our our Canadian values and our sense of justice by engaging with a regime that does so many repugnant things. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.